Belshazzar in the middle of this whole party. He says, hey, I got an idea. I got a real good idea. He said, why don't you go get those vessels that my father Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple, uh, which was at Jerusalem. Let's drink to the other gods out of those vessels. What a, what a party. Let's take this to another whole level. So he does, uh, and the handwriting on the wall, tackle, 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 abhorshin, your kingdom has departed from you. The uh, hand that uh, wrote on the wall, there was nothing attached to the hand. The Bible says the king began to uh, have his knees smote one against another. Okay, so we have his knees knocking. The joints of his loins were loosed. I don't know exactly what all that means, but it sounds pretty messy. And, uh, and so he wants to know what this message on the wall is. It cannot be interpreted. So he brings Daniel in. Daniel begins to interpret this dream for, Nebuchadnezzar, for Belshazzar. And he says something in this interpretation of this message that is worthy of our understanding in terms of how God works in developing nations. Watch what it says in uh, verse 18. O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty he gave him all people, listen to this, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. So whatever, uh, whatever Nebuchadnezzar, the grandfather or the father of Belshazzar had, it was given to him by God. He says Nebuchadnezzar was given all people, languages, uh, and kindred. They were given to him. They trembled before him. So can we say this, that God gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom of Babylon. In fact, the Bible says that, Belshe- uh, that Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant, even though he was, a, he was a pagan king. And God raised Nebuchadnezzar up to bring affliction to the southern kingdom of Israel and brought them into captivity in 586 uh, B.C. God did that. God allowed that. God raised them up. You all with me so far this morning? I'm asking a question. Is this America's last birthday? For one one reason is because in the Bible, nowhere in the scripture do you find a direct reference to America. You can't find it. I've studied from cover to cover of this book, and you cannot find a direct reference to, the, to, to America as we know it today. Now, such a world superpower that America has been for the last 40 or 50 years, from that, if you would, main dominant player in the nation's around the world today, to having no mention at all in the Word of God in the eschatological uh, future is puzzling to a lot of Bible believers. So the question that we've asked, where did, where did America go? Where's America in the Bible? You have references in the Bible to Persia, which is present-day Iran, Syria, uh, 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 Lebanon, Turkey, uh, or Tagarma, uh, um, uh, Russia, which would be uh, Meshach or the tribes of Tubal up in the northern part of, uh, of, of north of Georgia, uh, directly north of Jerusalem. Northern Africa is mentioned. Even the countries around, the, uh, around Israel in Psalm 83, you find them almost mentioned by name, each one of them, with the exception of Saudi, Saudi Arabia, which is merchants of Tarshish. I'm saying this morning, ladies and gentlemen, that biblically speaking, there's no mention of America in the Bible. 
There's a really general reference in maybe Revelation 12, the wings of a great eagle come and rescue the remnant out of Jerusalem and the Antichrist comes on the scene. But that is a far stretch to say, well, that's America. Or even the young lion reference here in Ezekiel chapter 38. Also, uh, it's a stretch to, to have a direct reference to America. So where did America go? And the question is, is this America's last birthday? Look, if you would, in John chapter 19. Again, the statement that God exercises authority over the rise and the fall of nations. John 19. Here's what we typically have in our mind comparing the life of a nation with that of a birth of a child. And the child uh, is birthed in weakness and it kind of rises up as a teenager, strong and then industrious. And by the time the, the, the young person turns into a young adult and then peaks in his lifetime somewhere around 35 to 45 years of age. And then you're over the hill, right? And then you're going down the other side and you start to kind of kind of decline. You get more weak and so forth. And then you kind of uh, get weak to the place where people have to take care of you. and you're, You die. Okay. You all with me? So we, we, have, we have taken and compared the rise and the fall of nations with that of a, of a, of a human being born and dying. And it's, it makes sense. But when you look at the Bible description of how nations are, arose and how nations are destroyed, it's anything like what we compare to in terms of a human being's birth and death. Typically, a nation rises instantly. It's a quick rise. Nations are formed sometimes overnight. And then the nation will plateau and then have an abrupt end, almost without warning. I'm talking about biblically speaking. God has risen nations surprisingly and has destroyed nations very quickly. And so when you look at, for example, Nineveh, when Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, he said, yet 40 days and God will destroy this country. And, and Jonah went out there and preached after he had a wonderful stay in the whale's belly for three days and three nights. He finally got right with God. He spit him up on the shore. He goes into Nineveh, a great city of three days journey. He begins to preach. Forty days, he says, God's going to destroy this place. And the king of Nineveh gets right. He proclaims a fast throughout all of the Nineveh. And all the beasts and all the animals had to put sackcloth on. And it was a major national repentance that took place in the city of Nineveh, which God gave them another 130-something years to exist. Now, I can give you example after example of God giving more time to nations on a national level, but I will say that God does destroy nations. In fact, it talks about the reference to God and how he views nations as a drop of a bucket or, or the dust on a scale in Isaiah's description of what God sees nations. So as great as America is and as powerful as America is, God says that's a drop in the bucket. That's dust on a scale to me. And so my point is this, that God exercises sovereignty over the forming of nations, over the destruction of nations. Y'all with me so far? Let me give you another example of that. If you would, go to John 19. I have you there, verse 10. Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate is the governor of Judea, of Jerusalem. He is the governor. He is, if you would, placed there by Rome. And he's there. And think about this, Pilate's attitude here. 
Oh, here we got another one of those crazy rabbis I got to deal with today. And he's tapping his watch. Jesus comes in. And he asked the question to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Pilate saith unto him, speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? So here's what Pilate is saying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know who you're talking to? You see that? I don't know. You, you may not know this, but I'm, I'm Pilate. <laughs> and I, I have right now the power to crucify you and also have the power to release you. So you better start talking. This is Pilate's words to Christ. Now watch the next verse. Watch this. Very interesting. Jesus answered, thou couldest have no power at all against me. Now listen to this. Except it were given thee from where? Above. You don't have any power. The power that you have has been given to you by God. So can we say this? When we deal with leaders, national leaders, forming of countries, it is a sovereign work of God. He exercises authority over the forming of nations. Look, if you would, in Jeremiah. This is a great study, by the way. Jeremiah chapter 18. Are you all doing okay? All right. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, Old Testament here. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse number 7. Y'all are doing great. Catch up with me. I'll read it. Verse 7. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom. Listen to this. To pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their what? Evil. I will repent of the evil that I have thought to do unto them. And at what instant, I love the phrase here, instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. In other words, God says, I can do this quickly in an instant. Then he says, and if, uh, uh, if it do evil in my sight and obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. So God's saying here that if a nation does good, I'll bless them. If a nation does evil, I will remove the blessings from them. Do you realize, God, all he has to do is remove his protection from our country, and we're messed up? Do you realize, I think 9-11 was God sort of clearing his throat. 9-11, 3,000 people killed on our soil. First time that on the mainland of our nation have we been attacked, and we suffered massive casualties that we've not seen in our generation And God just saying, I'm going to take my finger of protection off to show you what could happen. So, Pastor, where do we go from here? Look in Acts 17. Acts 17. So God exercises authority and sovereignty, which are interchangeable words, with the forming and the destruction of nations. Now, look in Acts 17. Pick it up in verse 25. Paul's speaking at Mars Hill. Uh, He's speaking to the Athenians there, and he's speaking to them about the unknown God that they cannot figure out. Now, I'm not going to unpack the whole sermon that he's bringing here, but verse 25 says, speaking about God, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he liveth to, um, he, he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And he hath made of one blood all what? Nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. A reference 
to what God is able to do. Listen to this, guys. What God is able to do of taking humanity, of people of one blood, okay, and dividing them up into nations. That's what it says here. Made of one blood, all nations of the men for the dwell on the face of the earth. Now listen to this. And hath determined the times beforehand. So in addition to God being able to take all humanity, divide them up into nations, he's also determined the times that those nations will exist. He understands that. But then he goes on to say in verse number 26, and the bounds of their habitation. How many have heard the phrase open borders? Okay. Do you realize the phrase and the desire to have open borders is an anti-biblical statement. God, according to verse number 26, and the bounds of their habitation, all the boundaries that we see across the globe, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's Vietnam or Thailand, or going up into the Koreas, the north, even in the south, the DMZ, China, Russia, coming down into Georgia, going to the Armenian, uh, the Ukraine, all of those boundaries. Do you realize, yeah, well, they fought for that boundary. And they, God, the Bible says, appointed these bounds. We have two boundaries. Listen, and those boundaries are appointed by God for us. Isn't that good? So my point is this, is number one, God not only is sovereign over the forming of nations, but he also determines the boundaries of those nations. So an open border concept is an unbiblical concept. Okay? Nothing wrong with people coming into the country. Nothing wrong at all, but need to come in legally. This porous border idea is a very dangerous, dangerous thing. No borders at all. This is whole idea of just having a border, borderless world. Say, Pastor, what are, you, what, are you, what are you getting at? Let me show you. Look, look at Re- Revelation chapter number 17. Revelation chapter 17. Look at, oh, because of time, go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. Last book of the Bible. A book that gives you the description of the end of what is coming. And uh, because of time, we'll just kind of move through this quickly. Verse, thir- verse 1, Revelation 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw the beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head, heads the name of blasphemy. And of course, we understand this beast to be the dragon. Of course, we understand this is going to be and the Antichrist. He was the beast, verse number 4, who was able to make war with him. And there was given unto him, this Antichrist, this beast, a mouth, speaking great things, verse 5, and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. 40 and 2 months, 3 and a half years on the Jewish calendar, 1260 days on the Jewish calendar, a time and time and a half of time, all referencing a very specific time period in the future called the tribulation period, specifically the middle of the tribulation period. That's a lot of material that we have time to cover now. But then in verse number 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against the God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given unto him over all what? Kindreds and what? And what? Okay, now, we have the beast, the Antichrist, okay, that has power over all tongues, 
all nations, all people, all kindreds. Y'all with me? That's a one world ruler. So at some point in the future, America is not going to be the America that you know, biblically speaking. So my question is, is this America's last birthday? Birthday? I don't know that. But I do know at some point in the future, America as we know it today is not going to be sovereign. We are no longer going to be the America that we know today. There is, as we speak this morning, there's a World Economic Forum. You can go onto their website, and their stated goals is to have a global reset. And I'm not going to unpack all of that, but their stated goals are very simple. They want, all, they want a borderless world. They want a one-world economy under, if you would, control of one central place. So at some point in the future, America will no longer be a sovereign nation. And so the United States is relatively unfor- uh, a young country. But as you look at the text verses that we looked at today, I think it's good for us to kind of go back about where we came from. I think 245 years of, of American history, there's, there's no doubt where we're at today is drastically different than where we began 245 years ago. So it's a very interesting lesson when you go back in history and uh, in, in college, one of my favorite courses in the undergraduate studies that we've done is to, uh, to go to history of civilization. History of Civ 1, history of Civ 2, I loved it. I couldn't get enough of how nations were formed and where civilizations began and all that. But at the very beginning of our nation, the 13 colonies coming together and declaring their independence from Great Britain and defeating the, the, the greatest military uh, in, that, in that time, And so the very beginning, the citizens that enjoyed the liberty and enjoyed the freedom that they had 245 years ago after the war for independence and now having 245 years of relative freedom, we go back and we find a couple of questions I think that's good for us to answer to this. I think, number one, did America or does the United States hold any special place in God's plan? And I would say Yes. I think number two, has God blessed the United States of America? And I would say without hesitation, absolutely. And the third and most logical question that we can ask here today is the United States, is the United States in danger of divine judgment? And we would also have to biblically answer the question, absolutely. So going back in history a little bit and looking back at Proverbs 14 and comparing this with the beginning of our nation, go back there if you would, Proverbs 14, our text verse, and verse number 34. Watch what it says here in verse 34. Think about this. A statement that any country and any time in human history could claim. This is not just to Israel. This is not just to one country. This is a blanket promise that any country can follow. Now, that's what it says. Righteousness exalteth a what? A nation. And so righteousness among any group of people, whether it's a church or a family, there is a benefit to that. The benefit of righteousness is an exalting, if you would, or a lifting up. Righteousness is understood in this verse to mean that if a group of people or a nation gets together and they desire righteousness... The benefit is exalting. 
What is righteousness? Basically a purity of heart and rectitude of life, conformity of heart and life to divine law. Divine law. What does that mean? That means when a people, a family, an individual, a church, a country says that we believe that there is a divine standard or divine law. Rectitude is the one or the desire to align your life up with the divine law. That's rectitude. And so righteousness exalted the nation. So when a nation says, we want God first, we want to honor God, we want God to be number one in every area of our life, that nation, that group, that people can take the promise that there's an exalting that comes. And simply mean exalting means simply to lift up. It literally means that when a nation is righteous, that nation will enjoy the honor that comes by being lifted up. And as you know, our nation was formed in the very beginning, before the Declaration, before the War for Independence. These shores across Massachusetts were filled with people that wanted to honor God. In 1620, the Mayflower Compact, and you could disagree with the Puritans, and I do. I have fundamental disagreements in their theology, but I do agree with their idea and their desire to honor God. I do. I do not believe in a state church as they did, but they wanted freedom of religion. They wanted freedom to worship God from the dip, and they created another state church in Massachusetts. But aside from their zealousness to, to create a culture that was so tight to honor God, here's what they said, having undertaken for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith to solemnly and mutually in the presence of God covenant and combine ourselves together. And the letter that is written here is that we, hear, we are here for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it started. You fast forward that 23, 23 years later to the New England Confederation. And the New England Confederation in 1643 stated this, whereas we all came into these parts with one and the same end and aim, Namely, to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. America was founded by men and women that acknowledged God as supreme ruler over everything. They were looking for religious freedom. They were looking to be able to come together. They weren't all fundamental Baptists. They weren't all Baptists. I understand that. But I'm saying that they all seemed to acknowledge that God was to be glorified. You fast forward that clock to 1776 on July 4th, 245 years ago from today. The prologue said in the Constitution, and as you know these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That men, all men, were created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so they acknowledged that there's certain unalienable life, liberty, is unable to be taken away, is given to them from divine, from the divine, and cannot be taken away from men. 
And it does not come from human government. They understood that. A reference to God. You go down in that same document, you'll find here that uh, and to secure and to protect these rights, governments are instituted among men. What they're saying is we want the form of government whose job is to protect and to guard what the creator has given each one of us. That's what government was for. And they understood that. They made references to God as the supreme judge of the world. So when you read the Declaration of Independence, in addition to the 15 or 16 grievances they had with King George, they said, listen, King, we have a bigger judge that we answer to. There's a bigger king that we answer to. And they reference that as the judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. Quote. And so my point is this. These men, these 56 brave men, pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor for the forming of this nation. Why? Because they wanted to honor God. They wanted to honor God. Five of them were captured. Twelve of them had their homes ransacked, burned to the ground. Two lost sons in war. One had uh, two sons captured. Nine fought and died from their wounds or hardships of war. I can go on and on of the 56 signers of the Declaration. But what they believed about God is intriguing to us. Thomas McCain, you can go through what happened to him and his home. John Quincy Adams, who became the first president, became the president in 1821. Here's what he said. Listen to these words. From the time of the Declaration of Independence, the American people were bound by the laws of God and the laws of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they all acknowledge as the root of their conduct. We all came together to obey the word of God. John Quincy Adams, George Washington said, farewell address. Here's what he said. If they even attempt to remove religion from politics, it says, Don't, do not let anyone claim to tribute of America patriotism if they even attempt to remove religion from politics. Patrick Henry, I go on and on on direct references to their belief in who God is. We get our three forms of government from the word of God, the judicial, executive, legislative branch, all from the word of God. I can go on and on. You go to Washington, you see reference, reference of God's word informing this nation. Don't tell me we're not a, we, didn't, we didn't come from Christian principles and ethics. It's so far from the truth. Our history is a history of dependence on God. We would not be independent if we did not have dependence on God. Number two. Number two. America's dependence on God. Number two, America's disobedience to God. Look at the rest part of this verse, the next part of this verse. Proverbs 14, 34b, it says here, but sin is a what? Reproach. Sin is a reproach to any people. The word sin simply means to disobey God. It means to go beyond a boundary. As you know, sin is beyond human cure. You can't cure sin with a pill. You can't take something to get rid of sin. The only thing that can take sin away is the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood. But when sin is finished, the Bible says it bringeth forth death. Sin is never going to just come and play tag with you. Sin individually on a national level, in any level you want, humanly speaking, is always moving you to a place of death. 
whether it's a teenager that thinks that they think they should explore everything out there, just know sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Death of a nation, death of an individual, death of your peace, death of your joy, death of your relationships. Death is hard. So always sin brings reproach. Reproach means simply expose and openness for everyone to mock. When you are reproached, when your family is reproached, when your name is reproached, when your country is reproached, it becomes a laughingstock of people that are watching, reproaching. So there's been an amazing attempt to pull this whole country away from what we came from. October 12th, 1892, Columbus Day, there was an observation in public schools during that time. And Benjamin Harrison proclaimed the first use of the original Pledge of Allegiance. And it stated this, I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. The words my flag were changed to the flag of the United States of America in 1924, during the Roaring Twenties, so to speak. And then 1928, the stock market crash and the subsequent 10 years of Great Depression where there was very little to eat in this country. Some of the members of Cornerstone Baptist Church in years past would tell me, even locally, how difficult it was to be a little girl or a little boy during the Great Depression. And between the pledge being changed to the flag of the United States of America to when they put reference to God in that pledge in 1954, we had the rise of Nazi Germany. We have the massive casualties in World War II, not only American casualties, but world countries and our world casualties, bloodshed, death. Polio disease taking children's lives. People wondering if their kids are going to die. It wasn't surprising in 1954. You know what? I think we better put something else in the pledge. And I want to say thank you to those who were alive in 1954. Though you may not have had much to do with the decisions. But thank you because it did say in 1954 added One nation under God. But 2010, the uh, the Ninth Circuit Court came up with a great idea that we don't need a nation under God. And it was an unconstitutional pledge. And many states right now will not pledge allegiance to the flag as stated in 1954. 1963, the Supreme Court said we don't need the prayer in the school. The next ruling they said, let's take the Bibles out. Then they took the Ten Commandments off the walls of the schools and the public buildings. Later was ruled that student body uh, could not pray at graduation. The court ruled that there is a certain segment in our society, namely the unborn children that had no rights. We can abort them. And today millions of aborted babies are being taken out of wombs. The safest place that should be in the world is the womb of a woman is now becoming the most dangerous place. Children today in graduation, like 
Will and Colton are going to be graduating next year are going to have to be careful what they say about references to Jesus Christ. They're not allowed to pray. The Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in 2015. We have the rise of androgyny in our country where a male doesn't know if he's a male, a female doesn't know if she's a female. Fifth graders are being pushed in their thinking of, am I a sex? What sex am I? We used to sing a George Strait song when I was a kid. Uh, all my exes live in Texas, and, and now all my exes had same-sex changes and all kinds of other crazy stuff that we have to listen to. Our churches have become places of shootings, and our society is rapidly declining. And so the point is this, how is, how is, how is reproaching a nation? What does it look like? Well, how about this? One in two marriages end in divorce. In 1960, one out of every ten women in 1960 were the sole provider for the home. Now it's more than two out of five. Gallup reports that there's enough students, listen to this, between ages 12 to 18 to fill the Rose Bowl, Cotton Bowl, Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, and Fiesta Bowl that are involved in some type of prostitution to supply enough money to take drugs. One million girls under the age of 17 will get pregnant outside of wedlock, with half of those pregnancies ending in abortion. 40% of America, 14-year-old girls, will be pregnant before their 19th birthday. 66 of America, I'm saying this morning, ladies and gentlemen, that because of sin, there's going to be unfortunate consequences, and that's just reproach. Child abuse is up 240% in America since 1976. Corruption and conviction of public uh, officials is up 450% since 1973. Sexual abuse of children is up 1,375% since 1962. America has the highest illiteracy rate in all the industrialized nations of the world. And as shocking as this, this is, in 2019, we lost, listen to this, we lost 70,663 people to drug overdoses. I have to look at these statistics. And seven, listen, the entire Vietnam War from 64 to 75, we lost 58,000, which is a lot. We lost 70,000 Americans to drug overdose in one year. 33 people shot alone in one night just last week in Chicago. Can I go on and on? Sin is a reproach to any people. Rachel Joy was one of the girls that were shot and killed at the Combine High School. She was a Christian. The murderer came to her and said, are you a you believe in God? And she says, yes, I do. And Rachel was killed that day. Her father, Donald Scott, spoke before the United States Senate. And here's what he said. I'm here today to declare that Combine was not just a tragedy. It was a spiritual event that should be forcing all of us to look at where the real blame lies. Much of the blame lies here in this room. 
Much of the blame lies behind the pointing fingers and the, accusing, and the accusers of themselves. Then he wrote a poem, and he wrote this poem four days, not even knowing he was going to be appearing before the Senate. He read this poem to the Senate. Your laws ignore our deepest needs. Your words are empty air. You've stripped away our heritage. You've you've outlawed simple prayer. Now gunshots fill our classrooms and our precious children die. You seek for answers everywhere and you ask the questions why. You regulate restrictive laws through legislative creed, and yet you fail to understand that God is what we need. America at one point was dependent on God. America today has been largely disobedient to God, and because of that, there's a reproach to approach any people. So why am I saying that? Because I'm asking the question, is this America's last birthday? And I believe that hinges on what we do today. What we do in across Bible-believing churches today. What we do with what God has given us today. I mean, it's so easy to point the finger at everyone else, but it's us. Remember, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 14, I know it was a principle and he promised to Israel, but wow, it is something that all of us can claim, where if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. It's then will I forgive their sins. It's then will I heal their land. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, it is not Washington's fault, although they're a mess there. It is not the courthouse. It is not even in the state house. It's in the church house. And I, I, I plead with you this morning that America needs to repent towards God. And here, again, our second verse here in Psalm 33. We're almost finished. Psalm 33, 12. Just pop over there real quick. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is a nation whose God is is the Lord. I don't know about you, man. I love blessings. I, I just, I love blessings. How many, you know, a blessing is something that you get that you don't deserve. Are y'all here? And it's good for you. How many have ever been blessed? Okay. All right. A blessing is something that God gives you that you don't deserve that is good for you. That's a blessing. The Bible says blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. The word blessing simply means prosperous in worldly affairs, enjoying spiritual happiness and favor with God, enjoying heavenly felicity, and God smiling on your family, smiling on you as an individual. But nationally speaking, the Bible says, blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. And so as we mentioned already, we've come a long way from how we began. We have. We come a long way from when people used to be God-fearing people. God-fearing politicians. God-fearing preachers. God-fearing businessmen. There used to be a time where churches in America were filled to capacity. There used to be a time where you could have three and four-hour church services and altars would be filled 
There used to be a time we could have 13 and 14 week camp meetings where people would come out to hear the word of God. There used to be a time where people like George Whitfield would come into the coal mines of, of West Virginia and preach the word of God. And thousands of miners would, would be evident of conviction because the tears would be flowing down their black cheeks as the coal dust was being wiped from their tears and repentance across our nation. Gone are those days. Gone are the days of all-night prayer meetings. Gone are the days where the Bible is supreme authority in a church and life and practice. Gone are the days where people don't even want to pray. We used to have good services on Wednesday night. People just loved to come to Wednesday night services. And then we went to praying. Oh, it's amazing. As soon as you call a prayer meeting, boy, the church congregation cut in half. What? And my house should be called a house of prayer? And we can't get people to come out to the meeting house to pray? What about that? We need to get back to the Bible. We need to get back to praying. We need to get back to fearing God. We need to get back to church. We need to get back to soul winning. We need to get back to discipling. We need to get back to serving God. Who knows what God will do? But I know this, at one point we were dependent on God, but we are independent from God now. We're disobedient to everything he's given on a national level. But I'm talking to this congregation, whoever's watching me online, that we need to have a repentance toward God. Can I just say this? Get off the fence. Get in. Can I say this in a gracious way? Or get out. Say, Pastor, how could you say that? Because Jesus said it in the book of Revelation. That lukewarm, he says, I would spew thee out of my mouth. You get hot or you get cold, but don't stay lukewarm. I just can't make up my mind what I want to do. You better start serving God. You won't have a country. Is this America's last birthday? It's not about America being America being as we know it, continuing as we know it. I love to see that happen. We understand the kingdom is coming. We understand the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. We understand that there's a trumpet going to sound and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There's a great time coming and we're going to go into the kingdom. I'm excited about that, but I don't know when that is. It's a blessed hope. It can happen at any time. Before I finish this sentence, we could be gone. But where are you today spiritually? Don't tell me your excuses and don't give me all the, well, I got burned at this church and that person hurt me and she didn't shake my hand. The pastor walked right by me and I didn't get my Tupperware bowl back from the last, tu- the last uh, uh, potluck and no one ate my beans and all the other stuff that we use as excuses on why we leave church and no one called me when I was sick and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Where are you with God right now? I could have all kinds of excuses, man. I really could. If there's any person that could have an excuse to drink, it will be a pastor. <laughs> I agree with Tom Gang on that, man. <laughs> you all with me? I'm saying this morning, there ought to be a people that say, you know what? This book right here is our authority. I'm going to stay with it. And I know this. I know things are going to get worse. 
Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, plural. COVID-19 was just the beginning. I understand that because there's more coming. There's, there's earthquakes in diverse places. There's all kinds of crazy stuff in this world. Got it. But we still have the same God. We still have the same Holy Spirit. And we still have a book right here that we can trust. <laughs> now, is this America's last birthday? I don't know. But I know this. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. So Jonah gets into that city, man. It's a mess. I mean, they're worshiping fish gods in Nineveh. They're filleting people alive, the Ninevites. They're miserable, wicked. You know, the Ninevites were almost like those people, like ISIS. I mean, you look at some of the the archaeological digs and what they find, they just love to dominate and put heads on people that they killed for everyone to see. The Ninevites. Jonah, I want you to go there. No, I won't go. I'm going the other way. All right. And so here comes a whale. The whale followed that ship for a little while. I could imagine those mariners looking out. That's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. You ever see a whale follow a ship? And you imagine that whale looking up through the water, up into the back of that ship, and God saying, no, that's not the one. That's, not, that's the one right there. That's Jonah. Yeah, it's him. They're going to throw him overboard just to get a hold of him. Swallow him? Yep. Okay. And so Jonah says, toss me over, and I'll be all right. And the wind will go away. The wind, the, all the waves will die down. You know what Jonah was wanting? He was wanting a checkout, man. Just kill me and it'll be over. One, two, three. Jonah say, I'm free. I'm going to die. Not so fast, Jonah. And so Willie the whale swallowed him and took him where he didn't want to go and spit him up on the shores of Nineveh and begins to preach repentance. Now, listen, you think about the, the, the condition of that nation and when they repented, they got more time. I already mentioned this. I'm saying this. I know we're in a mess. I understand that. But if our people, God's people, will be right, what could we see? It would be a wonderful thing one day to see people lined up outside of the church wanting to come in to hear the word of God. I heard of a revival one time, and I'm finishing, where they beat on the doors of the church because they wanted inside. They wanted to come in to the house of God. You couldn't run them off. The next night they come back. You look at the, some of the revivals where 500 people show up out of nowhere to hear the word of God. Some of you remember some of the sawdust meetings and the preaching of years past. Could we have that again? We could. It'd be nice to have the Holy Spirit work in a great way again. But is this America's last birthday? I don't know. But I would say this. If it started right here, a revival started right here, can God start with this church? Can God start with you? Can God start with your heart? Dad, can he start with your heart? Would you be a father to say, you know what? I'm putting God first. 